Uh, my name is David. I'm one of the pastors here at the Church of Cane Bay. And um, two ways that I know that spring is quickly approaching is number one, uh, I feel like I inhaled about 12 pounds of pollen yesterday. Uh, so you can hear that probably in my voice. Uh, and secondly, within about four games of the NCAA tournament starting, I was just like, well, I guess I'll try again next year. So it was done. Some of you guys felt that, you know that. Uh, it's uh, a lot of people are doing the brackets these days. And uh, interesting thing about college basketball season and this time of year particularly, uh, one of my favorite groups of people starts to uh, really come out in force this time of year. Um, you guys familiar with the term bandwagon fans? You guys familiar with that? Like, like all of a sudden there's a lot of Kentucky fans, you know, like Kentucky's undefeated this year and they're making a run and all of a sudden it's people that are like, you know what, I've been rooting for Kentucky for three, four weeks. I mean, at least uh, it's, it's been great. And I always really struggle with bandwagon fans because uh, I'm, I'm a lifelong uh, Cincinnati Reds, Cincinnati Bengals, Cincinnati Bearcats fan. There you go. Yeah, that's what I'm talking about. Thank you guys. So you know, what I'm, you know where I'm going with this. It, it's not good. So it's, it's not good. Uh, and so I struggle with like, people that just go, no, 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 I'm just going to root for this team when, when they're winning. I'm just going to root for this team when things are good. But when things are bad, I'll find some other team to kind of handle my fandom. And I think, interestingly enough, if we were to uh, look around the greater church, specifically the church in America, we would find, I, I think, what I, I would call a lot of bandwagon Bible readers, um, people who like to believe the Bible when, what they, when they agree with what they read in the Bible, you know? I agree with this. I like this. Love your neighbor as yourself. Yeah, let's do that. But then in the harder passages of Scripture, we like to say things like, you know what, it's a different time, different context. Paul didn't really mean that. Jesus isn't really talking about taking up your cross daily. He, he, he wants you to come to him, those who are heavy laden. And so what we start to do as bandwagon Bible readers is we start to pick and choose which part of the Bible we believe is inspired. But the problem is the Bible doesn't afford us that opportunity. The Bible doesn't afford us that opportunity in 2 Timothy chapter 3, which we'll get to several years from now probably. Um, in 2 Timothy chapter 3, Paul says that all Scripture is breathed out by God. That means that every word of it is the inspired word of God. And so God has not afforded us the authority to say, I think God meant this, but I don't think that he meant this. And so we must remember that either the Bible is our objective standard of truth or it isn't. Either we believe the Bible, even when it presses into hard places on our lives, or we don't believe that it is valuable at all. And so this morning, we are going to deal with a very tough text. I think one of the most controversial texts in probably all of the New Testament, definitely in maybe in 1 Timothy, specifically inside of our greater culture. But I want us, hopefully, to see this morning God's good design in the hard words of Paul to the church at Ephesus and to its pastor, Timothy. So if you have your Bibles, turn to 1 Timothy chapter 2. 1 Timothy chapter 2, we're going to start in verse 8. 1 Timothy chapter 2, I hope that you have uh, the scriptures in front of you this morning, uh, whether you have them uh, in your hand or whether you're using your mobile device uh, using version, you can click on live events. All of my notes are right there. The scriptures will be on the screen behind me. If you don't own a Bible, don't have a Bible, we'd love to give you one. Just stop, let one of us know on the way out. However you choose to engage with the scriptures this morning, I hope that we would see God's wisdom in his words. 
1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 8 through 15, Paul says this, I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise, also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for your word. Thank you that it is good and true and right. And I pray this morning, God, as it presses um, into difficult areas of our heart and into um, controversial areas in our culture, Father, that we would elevate your truth above any other opinion that we might have and that we would see the beauty of your good design this morning and the roles that you've called men and women to play in your church. It's for your beautiful name. Amen. So what I want to work through this morning is this idea. If you're taking notes, you can write this idea down. It'll be on the screen behind me. I want to work through this idea from 1 Timothy chapter 2, that God has created men and women with equal value and complementary roles in the church. God has created men and women with equal value and complementary roles in the church. Now, earlier in this chapter, uh, we learned who to pray for. Paul says, offer your prayers for all people, for leaders and those who are in high position. And last week, we talked about what to pray for, that we should pray that all men might come to the knowledge of the truth of salvation through Jesus. And this week, Paul continues in this, showing us who we should be when we pray. And so there are three things that I think Paul shows us here. Number one, he shows that we should be men of purity. Number two, he shows us that we should be women of modesty. And number three, he gives us an idea of leadership roles inside the church. So let's pull those three things apart. First, verse eight. Paul says that in every place, men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Paul, again, is writing to the church at Ephesus, and he feels the need to address two specific issues here with the men. So he says, specifically, here's my call and charge to the men. Now, in chapter one, he had already spoken to the men specifically about the way that they handle false teaching, but here, he, he, he talks to them not about their actions, but about their motivations, specifically their motivations when they pray. And there were two issues that affected the men who were praying in the church at Ephesus. Number one was purity, and number two was anger. And so Paul says first, he deals with the issue of purity. He says that men should pray lifting up holy hands. Now, this is an Old Testament callback. You see, in the Old Testament, the image of holy hands symbolized someone who had had their sin forgiven. In Psalm chapter 24, verse 3 and 4, the psalmist writes, who shall, uh, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false or swear deceitfully. And then in Psalm 26, 6, the psalmist writes, I wash my hands in innocence and go around your altar, O Lord. Clean hands was symbolic of someone who had confessed their sin before the Lord and found mercy. And so what was happening in Ephesus is that men were coming to God in prayer and not confessing their sin. 
They were coming to the Lord in prayer and they were saying, God, thank you for being a great God. And they were doing all of the things that Paul had taught them to do earlier in this chapter. But before they pray, they were just not confessing their sin. In fact, they pretended that they could hide their sin. And some of us do the same thing. Some of us pray every day potentially, but we never have that time of confession before the Lord where we say, God, I need you to forgive my sinfulness. Paul says that in order to not have our prayers hindered, he says we must go before the Father and confess our sin and the Father is faithful to forgive our sin. And so he reminds the men of Ephesus that when you pray, you must pray lifting up holy hands, trusting the Father to forgive your sin. Secondly, he deals with the issue of anger, and he says that we should pray without anger or quarreling. So likewise, just as we need to be made right with God by confessing sin and allowing the Holy Spirit to minister to us in sanctification, we must also be made right with one another. And so what were happening in Ephesus was men were going before the Father in prayer, and yet they were harboring anger and bitterness towards their brothers. And Paul says this should not be. In fact, Jesus speaks about this. In Matthew chapter 5, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 23 and 24, Jesus says this. So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. And so Jesus says that if we are praying and we remember that we are harboring anger or bitterness, against a brother or sister in Christ, that we must stop what we are doing and go and make that right, that our prayers might not be hindered by our anger and bitterness. I heard someone say once, I believe it was Anne Lamont, she said, harboring bitterness is like drinking rat poison and waiting on the other person to die. And some of you, I believe this morning that your prayers before the Father are being hindered because you have something in your heart against your brother and sister in Christ and you need to make that right. So Paul says, pray without anger and purity, lifting holy hands, being made right with God and right with one another. Now, secondly, he moves on from men of purity to women of modesty. So he moves away from addressing the men and he begins to address the women. Now, he says, likewise, also, women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel. Now, this seems random. It seems like Paul has just moved from prayer to fashion. And it's like, Paul, I'm not tracking here. You just talked about prayer, but now you're talking about what women wear. But again, it's about motivation. It's about motivation. You see, Ephesus was a city full of sexual immorality. Full of it. We don't know anything about that in our cities or in our suburbs. And some of the culture had begun naturally to creep its way into the church. And specifically in the way that women were dressing in the church. They were beginning to dress immodestly and seductively inside the church. And the motivation for which was questionable at best and sinful at worst. And so Paul takes this opportunity to address the way that the women are dressing. Not because he wants to critique their fashion, but because he wants to expose the motivations of their heart. That in exposing the motivations of their heart, they might confess it before God and be forgiven. So the first thing that he says is he says they should dress with modesty and self-control. Women were dressing in a way to call attention to their physical attributes. Now, Paul is not calling on women to dress in burlap 
but he is asking them to question their motives regarding their dress. He's saying, when I dress myself to go before the body of Christ in worship, is my motivation to find confidence in what I'm wearing by inciting desire in men who are not my husband? Or maybe is my motivation meant to incite jealousy in other women? That they might see my physical beauty, that I might be desirable to them, that I might be um, one who is elevated in their eyes. And Paul's saying, this is not how it should be. Your confidence should not come from the way that men and other women look at you, but from the way that your father sees you. And so he begins to say, how are you thinking? What's the motive of your heart when you're going to the house of worship? So Paul is asking the women to begin dressing in a way that brings glory to Jesus, that the motivation of their heart should not be what can I wear that makes myself look good, but what can I wear that shows a humble heart devoted to God and worship? Again, he's not picking on women here. He's just calling out the motivations in our hearts that by seeing that, we might find forgiveness. Now, secondly, he says this. This is interesting. He says that the women should, wear, should dress modestly and with self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but for with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Now, so he says specifically, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire. Now, some of you husbands just nudged your wife. We're like, see, that's why we can't have nice things. It's right there in the Bible. Don't ask me for that jewelry. Paul just said, get rid of it. What was happening in Ephesus is that women were beginning to address in a way that not only accentuated their physical attributes, but accentuated their wealth. They were dressing in a way that showed that they were rich, and it was causing a disparity in the church between those who were rich and those who were poor. And so again, Paul is not saying that we should, at the church, stand outside the door, and if any of you come in with your hair braided, we'd say you turn around and go home. That's not what he's saying. He's saying we should not dress in a way that elevates ourselves as wealthy and might cause our less wealthy brothers and sisters to stumble in their faith. And so Paul again says, why are we wearing these things? You see, the gospel... In the life of mature believers, here's what you'll find as you mature in Christ, that the gospel of Jesus Christ begins to press not only on our actions, but on our motivations. And that as you mature in your faith, what you're going to find is that your actions may become more godly, but you will begin to see that your motivations are still often wicked. And so Paul is calling into effect here in the lives of both men and women the motivations of their heart when they come before the Lord and before the body. And he says that our motivations, men and women, should be captured by the gospel. That not only in what we do, but what we intend to do, Jesus might be glorified. That's beautiful. So he talks about men of purity, he talks about women of modesty, and then he talks about leadership roles. And now we come to the main event. This is one of the most controversial passages in the New Testament. Context, however, when we deal with passages of controversy, specifically in our culture, context is key. 
Now, Paul is addressing a specific problem in Ephesus. Note, I want to say this on the front end. Paul is not a misogynist. He is not a misogynist. That will be the label that he is given in our culture. Paul hates women. That is not true. And it's not what he's saying. He is not picking on women in this passage. You see, the context around this passage was that false teachers had arisen in Ephesus, and they were beginning to deceive women in the church into undercutting godly doctrine. Now, there are other places where Paul says things in the scriptures that seemingly, or or on the surface, seem contradictory to what he preaches here. However, what we need to remember when we come up against two passages in the scripture that seem contradictory, that seem to say two different things, we need to remember two things. I want you to write this down. First, when we bump up against passages that seem contradictory, we need to remember two things. One, we need to remember the principle of harmony. The principle of harmony. That scripture, we always use scripture to interpret scripture. And so we must interpret what Paul is saying in, second, in 1 Timothy chapter 2 through what Paul has said in other areas of scripture because all of scripture is inspired by God. Paul is not the author of 1 Timothy. God is the author of 1 Timothy. He's using Paul to speak his words. And so if scripture has one author, God, and God does not contradict himself, when we see two passages that seem to contradict one another, we should look at each passage in its context with the conviction that the passages are ultimately unified. That even though we can't see how they are unified together, we trust that because God does not contradict himself that they are unified. Secondly, we must remember the principle of history, that God revealed truth in the context of a specific historical and cultural setting. Paul was writing to a real group of people in the church at Ephesus, dealing with real issues that had arisen in Ephesus. And so when we read the scripture, we must keep the context in view. We must remember that there were real specific things happening in this city that Paul was writing to address. And so we must determine whether he was addressing cultural expression which changes or is what he is saying central revelation, meaning that it never changes. So is he addressing something specific to Ephesus or is he addressing something that is much larger than that? Let me give you an example of what I mean, whether we can find whether something is cultural expression or whether it is central revelation. So Paul says to the women, um, that they should, not wear, they should not come with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly attire. Now, at the time, these things were symbols of wealth. To braid one's hair in Ephesus and to wear gold and jewelry and costly attire, they were to establish oneself as wealthy. So Paul is addressing that cultural expression and saying, if you are doing these things, to differentiate yourself that you have wealth and elevate yourself other, over other believers, it is sinful. Now, I do not believe that Paul's call in 1 Timothy here is for all of you to take off your jewelry and to unbraid your hair unless you're doing it in the way that he says not to. You see, the cultural expression changes. I don't believe Paul would say to the women in our church, don't braid your hair, don't wear jewelry. 
but I do believe that he would say, what are your motives for wearing what you're wearing? See the difference? Cultural expression, central revelation. The methods change. The motivations do not. So Paul preaches to our motivations. So what of what Paul says, so which of what Paul says in verses 11 through 15 is cultural expression, Paul addressing a specific problem in Ephesus, and which of it is central revelation, Paul addressing something that maintains, that, that lasts until you and I today. So I want to look at three things, three sub-points of this leadership role. Number one, I want to look at God's good design. Number two, I want to look at Satan's distortion. And then number three, I want to look at salvation through Jesus. So first, I want to look at God's good design. Let's read verse 11 and 12. It says, Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. Now, to understand where Paul is coming with this, we have to go all the way back to Genesis chapter 1. In Genesis chapter 1, it says that God creates man and he creates woman and that he creates them with equal dignity and value. That each, man and woman, are both equally dignified and valuable to the creator. And from Genesis chapter 1, the Bible teaches us that to demean one gender as inferior is an insult to the design of God. That when we say that men are superior to women, that's an insult to the design of God. And when we say that no women are superior to men. That is an insult to the design of God. When we idolize our own gender, we demonize another. And all throughout the course of history, God has said that this is sinful. So Paul's charge here is not one of value or worth. He is not showing the church at Ephesus that women are inferior or less valuable to the Father than the men are. No, no, no. It is not a question of value. It is a question of of roles, roles that God has specifically in his good design determined that men and women should play. You see, God creates men and women with distinct complementary roles, and the roles that men and women have flow directly from the nature of the triune God. We believe in a God that is triune. He is Father, he is Son, he is Holy Spirit. He is three in one. If you need more explanation, Charlie's available after the service. Listen, he is three in one. All three, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, are equal, and all three play different roles. In the scriptures, we see the Son, Jesus, submitting willingly to the Father. Jesus doesn't begrudgingly submit to the Father. He doesn't say, oh, I got to do what God says. No, no, no. Jesus, the Son, willingly submits his life to the Father, and the Father lovingly directs the Son. They are co-equal in value and yet have distinct complementary roles. And in much the same way, God creates men and women in his image, the image of the triune God, with equal value and distinct roles. Neither role is superior. That's the deceitfulness that we, that's, the, that's what we've been deceived into believing by our culture. That the role of men is superior to the role of women. And it is not true because it is not a question of value. It is a question of God in his goodness assigning roles and saying this is the way that men and women will reflect my glory. God's design for men and women 
Ephesians chapter 5, it, it's on the screen. I, I won't take the time to read that, but, but in Ephesians chapter 5, Paul talks about the roles of men and women, specifically inside the home and specifically in the role of husband and wives. He says, husbands, it's your job to lead and to love your wife as Christ loved the church. And women, it is your job to submit and respect your husband as the church sees Jesus as the head. And he says that when in our homes we fill the roles that God has created for us, our marriages and our relationships become blazing signposts to the glory and good design of God. And God intends that the roles in the home would carry over into the church. And so we must read verse 11 and 12 with a broader context of 1 Timothy in view. We're going to get to some of this in the next couple weeks. But in 1 Timothy chapter 3, Paul will say that the church, God's design for the church is that the church would be led by qualified male elders and pastors. And that the way that these men are to exercise the authority that God has given them in the church is in two ways, through teaching and through leading. So Paul is not saying that women are never to teach in this passage, but specifically that they are not called to teach as pastor, elders, overseers of the church. He says that that role, God in his good design, created specifically for the men, that the men would lead and love and teach in the church. Now he goes on to say that women should learn quietly and all submissiveness. Now, He is not saying that the minute a woman walks into the church that she should be mute. Don't say anything. The men are speaking. That's not what he's saying. But instead, again, he's calling women and men under the authority of the eldership that he has placed in leadership that they are to listen attentively and with a teachable spirit to the men that God has called to lead them. Now, Notice, God doesn't just call someone to be a leader and a pastor and an elder and an overseer in the church just because he's a dude. There are lots of unqualified men in the church who are not qualified to be elders or leaders of the church. So biology does not make you qualified to lead God's church. But he says, and we'll see this in the next chapter, he gives the qualifications or these are the things that you should see in the life of your leadership. And he says that his intention is that men would lead in these positions. Now, we go back. Women, he doesn't, he, he's not saying that women are never to teach because in the scriptures, there are lots of opportunities where women are called to teach. Um, in 2 Timothy chapter 1, it says that Timothy himself learned from the teaching of his mother and his grandmother. That the first people that taught Timothy about Jesus were his mom and his grandma. And then in Titus chapter 2 verse 3, Titus says, or Paul says to Titus that, that, we should, that older women should teach younger women how to grow in godliness, how to grow in grace. And then in Matthew 28, Jesus doesn't say, hey men, go and make disciples. The Great Commission is a call to all of us. To all of us. That men and women alike would serve in the capacity and roles that God has ordained in his goodness and in his grace to us. That Jesus might be seen in our homes and churches. Now, Paul is saying that women 
scripturally are not permitted to teach or lead as pastors or elders, but instead are gladly called to submit to servant leadership of the elders and lead in various positions of the churches under the authority of the men that God has called to lead. Now notice, this is not an inferior role. It's not an inferior role. We have to get that out of our mind that the role of women in the church is somehow inferior. It is not. God in his good design has called us to this. And all throughout the New Testament, we find women teaching, helping, serving, equipping, and sharing the gospel. God in his good design has given authority in the home and the church to qualified men. Now men, before we get too proud of ourselves, here's what God's called you to. Authority in the Bible is never about power. It's always about dying to yourself. So men, before we get too proud and say, see, God gave me the authority. When God gives you the authority, he means that you're the first to die. That you are the first to die to your sinful desires and your sinful flesh. And you are the one that stands courageous, selflessly, so that the women in your life and in our church might see Jesus modeled selflessly through your dying to yourself. So don't take this as a means that you are now called to some sort of cosmic abuse system where you can trample on the women that God has placed in your life because you have authority. No, 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 no. Authority is all about dying to self and loving your wives as Christ loved the church so much so that he laid his life down for them. So what we see is that God has created men and women co-equal with distinct roles in the church. Now, here's what I want you to see, the last two points. Number two, Satan's distortion of this. In Genesis chapter three, Satan strikes at the heart of this truth by tempting Eve. Now, in verse 13 and 14, it seems like Paul may again be taking a shot at women. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Now, if we read this on the surface, it seems to say that Satan went after Eve because women are more easily duped. And that's not at all what Paul is saying. That Satan's attack was meant not to show that Eve is somehow inferior, but Satan's first attack was meant to undercut God's good design for the roles that men and women have. And so here we see in Genesis chapter 3, this is going to be on the screen, Genesis chapter 3, verse 6 and 7. Here's what we see. It says, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took its fruit and ate, and she gave also some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Notice what happens. Satan approaches Eve. He tempts Eve to sin. Where's Adam? Says that Adam's there with her. What's Adam doing? Failing to lead. He's failing to lead and protect his wife. And so the fall of Eve is tied directly to the failure of Adam. And so Adam does not lead in the way that he's been called and designed to lead. He sits back and he does nothing. And in Adam's abdication of his responsibility, Eve assumes it. And she assumes something that she was never meant to assume. And when we assume things that we were never meant to assume, they crush us. And it leads to sin being entering into God's good design. 
And so we see that Satan's first attack is on the roles of men and women. And let me tell you, I don't know if you can see this in popular culture, but that attack strategy is still working. That attack strategy is still working. Men, he wants you to believe that you should rule with an iron fist. Men, he wants you to believe that God made you superior and that what you say should go. Women, he wants you to believe that you are inferior. He wants you to believe that your husband and the men in your life are oafs. He wants you to believe these things because in believing these things, we undercut God's good design. Someone once said that Satan's best trick was not getting us to do bad things, but getting us to believe false things about God. And so he gets us to believe that God didn't have it right, and that he didn't know what he was doing, and that he didn't understand our culture, and he didn't understand our context. And so we war together as men and women for superiority in our homes and in our churches and in our culture, and the name of God is slandered. Third, finally, we are saved by Jesus. Now, verse 15 is an interesting verse. And there's a lot of scholarly debate regarding this verse. It says, Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness and with self-control. And I did some research on this verse this week just to try to figure out exactly. And there are two schools of thought about this. And a lot of good people believe they're not real sure what Paul is getting at here. One school of thought is that Paul is talking about the salvation that will come through the offspring of Eve, that Eve falls and sinners into the wor- and that sin enters into the world, but yet eventually we read in 3.16 of Genesis, Genesis 3.16 that from the seed of a woman, the head of Satan will be crushed, that, meaning that one day someone will be born to a woman who will crush sin once and for all, and that is Jesus born to Mary. And so some scholars believe that Paul is referencing this. Other scholars believe that Paul is talking about the significance of women nurturing children. That's the significance of the role of women to bear children and to raise children and to care for children. But I couldn't find really any kind of agreement. And so we're not sure exactly what Paul means here, but we do know two things for sure. We can infer two things from this passage. First, that women are sanctified and God is glorified through the distinct roles and responsibilities that God has given them. And that men are too. And that when we submit humbly to the roles that God has set out before us, and when we say, your design is good, and I'm going to work through the power of the Holy Spirit to submit to your way and submit to your purposes and submit to your methods, we are made more like Jesus and God is glorified in our homes, in our lives, and in our churches. Now, secondly, here's one thing that we know for sure, that women are not saved by the birth of children. They are not saved by the birth of a child. Instead, they are, sir, they are saved by the death of their Savior. But there are many women who have had children that did not trust in Jesus and that died and that are now separated from him for all eternity But the women who trust that Jesus has come and lived the life that they couldn't live and died the death that they should have died and defeated the enemies that they could not defeat. 
and that if they will trust him to forgive their sins and model their lives after his submission to the Father, that they will be saved. And that is not just true for women, but it is true for men. It is true for all of us. And we work in the power of the Spirit to model God's good design for our lives, for his glory and for our joy and for others' good. And God has created men and women with equal value and complementary roles in the goodness of his design, in the grace of his mercy. Would you pray with me? Jesus, we love you. And I thank you that the scriptures press in on difficult areas of our hearts and lives. And God, I pray that the truth expounded this morning in your word, God, that we would wrestle with that. God, I know, I I know, I can feel the spirit in the room that these words make some angry and they make some uncomfortable and they offend their hearers. But God, I pray that we would not allow our offense to blind us to your good design. And so, God, I pray that homes in our churches would be places where Jesus is glorified, where men lead and love the way that Christ led and loved the church, and that women submit and respect the way that Christ submits and and respects the Father, and the church submits and respects Christ. And God, I pray that our church then would be a reflection of what you're doing in our homes, that we would be a place where all people, no matter the gender, felt equally valued and equally cared for, and that they equally had a role to play in what you were doing in our community. And so, God, we ask you to give us eyes to see and ears to hear and minds to understand and hearts to receive what it is that you want to do in our lives. Thank you for Jesus, that he has saved us and redeemed us from the sin of the fall, that we can be loved and known by you. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Shall stand and join us.